Welcome, everyone, to episode 97 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and today's episode is a wild one. Now, I do want to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope that you all had a great day with family and lots of good food. But now, let's just get into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This first story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Gary Michael Hednick was a murderer and serial rapist who kidnapped, tortured, and raped six women, murdering two of them while holding them captive in a self-dug pit in his basement floor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was sentenced to death and executed by lethal injection in July 1999 currently the last prison to be executed in the state. Heidnick was one of the inspirations for Buffalo Bill, a character in the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943 in Eastlake, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, to Michael and Ellen Heidnick. He had a younger brother, Terry, After their parents divorced in 1946, the Heidnick children were raised by their mother for four years before being placed in the care of their father and his new wife. Heidnick would later claim that he was emotionally abused by his father. He suffered a lifelong problem of bedwetting and said that his father would humiliate him by forcing him to hang his stained sheets from his bedroom window in full view of all of their neighbors. After his son's arrest, Heidnick's father denied the abuse allegations. While in school, Gary did not interact with his fellow students, and he refused to make eye contact. When a well-meaning new female student asked, Did you get the homework done, Gary? He yelled at her, and he told her that she was not, quote, worthy enough to talk to him. He was also teased about his oddly shaped head, 
which he and Terry claim was the result of a young hideneck falling out of the tree. Nonetheless, Gary performed well academically and tested with an IQ of 148. With the encouragement of his father, a 14-year-old Heidnick enrolled in the Staunton Military Academy in Staunton, Virginia for two years before leaving after graduation. After another period in public high school, he dropped out and he joined the United States Army when he was 17. Gary served in the Army for 13 months. During basic training, his drill sergeant graded him as excellent. He applied for several specialist positions, including the military police, but was rejected. He was sent to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a medic, and did well throughout medical training. However, he did not stay in San Antonio very long, and was transferred to the 46th Army Surgical Hospital in West Germany. Within weeks of his new posting in Germany, he earned his GED. In August 1962, Gary began complaining of severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, and nausea. A hospital neurologist diagnosed him with gastrotinitis and noted that he also displayed symptoms of mental illness for which he was pres prescribed medication. In October of 1962, Gary was transferred to a military hospital in Philadelphia where he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and consequently honorably discharged from military service. Shortly after his discharge, Gary became a licensed practical nurse and he enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania only to drop out after a single semester. He worked at a Veterans Administration Hospital in Coatesville but he was fired for poor attendance and rude behavior towards patients. From August 1962 until his arrest in March 1987, Gary spent time in and out of psychiatric hospitals and had attempted suicide at least 13 times. In 1970, his mother, who had been diagnosed with bone cancer and was suffering the effects of alcoholism, committed suicide by drinking mercuric chloride. His brother, Terry, also spent time in a mental institution and attempted suicide multiple times. In October 1971, Gary incorporated a church called the United Church of the Ministries of God, initially with a mere five followers. In 1975, he opened an account under the church's name with Merrill Lynch. The initial deposit was for $1,500. Gary eventually amassed over $500,000. By 1986, the United Church of the Ministers of God was prosperous and opulent. Gary used a matrimonial service to meet his future wife, Betty Disto, with whom he corresponded by mail for two years before proposing to her. Betty arrived from the Philippines in September of 1985 and married Gary in Maryland the following month on October 3rd. The marriage rapidly deteriorated after she caught him in bed with a trio of other women. Throughout the course of their brief marriage, 
Gary forced his wife to be an onlooker while he performed intercourse with other women. Betty also accused Gary of repeatedly raping and assaulting her. With the help of the Filipino community in Philadelphia, she was able to leave Gary in January 1986. Unknown to Gary until his ex-wife requested child support payments in 1987, he had impregnated Betty during their short marriage. On September 15, 1986, she gave birth to a son, whom she named Jesse John Disto. Gary also had a child with Gail Lincow, a son named Gary Jr. The child was placed in foster care soon after his birth. Gary had a third child with another woman, and Jeanette Davidson, who was illiterate and mentally disabled. Their daughter, Maxine Davidson, was born on March 16, 1978, and immediately placed in foster care. Shortly after Maxine's birth, Gary was arrested for the kidnapping and rape of Anjanette's sister, Alberta, who had been living in an institution for the mentally disabled in Penn Township. In 1976, Gary was charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed pistol after shooting at the tenant of a house that he offered for rent, grazing the man's face. In 1978, Gary signed out Alberta Davidson, the sister of his then-girlfriend, Anjanette Davidson, from the Harrisburg State Hospital on day leave and proceeded to imprison her in a locked storage room in his basement. After she was found and returned to the hospital, examination revealed that she had been raped and sodomized and that she had contracted gonorrhea. Gary was arrested, charged, and convicted of kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, and voluntary deviant sexual intercourse and interfering with the custody of a committed person. The original sentence was overturned on appeal and Gary spent three years of his in incarceration in mental institutions prior to being released in April 1983 under the supervision of a state-sanctioned mental health program. After his wife left him in 1986, Gary was arrested again and charged with assault indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. On November 25, 1986, Gary abducted a 25-year-old woman named Josefina Rivera. By January 87, he had kidnapped another four women, whom he held captive in a pit in the basement of his house in North Philadelphia. The captives were raped, beaten, and tortured. One of the women, 24-year-old Sandra Lindsay, died of a combination of starvation, torture, and an untreated fever. Gary would dismember her body, but he had problems dealing with the arms and legs, so he put them in a freezer and labeled them dog food. He cooked her ribs in an oven, and he boiled her head in a pot on the stove. Police officers came to his house after his neighbors complained of a nauseating odor that was emanating from his residence. But they left the premises after Gary explained, I'm cooking a roast. I fell asleep and it burnt. Several sources 
state that Gary ground up the flesh of Lindsay, mixed it with dog food, and he fed it to his other victims. His defense attorney, Chuck Pierto, said that upon examination of a Cuisinart and other tools in his kitchen, they found no evidence of this. His lawyer said that Gary made up the story to support the insanity defense. His attorney said that Gary started the rumor of cannibalism in public and that there was no evidence of anyone ever eating human flesh. Gary used an electric shock as a form of torture. At one point, he forced three of his captives, bound in chains, into a pit. He then ordered Rivera and another woman to fill the hole with water and enforced Rivera to help him apply electric current from a stripped extension cord to the woman's chains. 23-year-old Deborah Dudley was electrocuted to death, and Gary disposed of her body in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. On January 18, 1987, Gary abducted Jacqueline Askins, the youngest of the six victims. Askins was only 18 years old at the time of her abduction. On May 5, 2018, a special report titled Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors 30 Years Later was aired and featured an interview in which Askins recounted that Gary wrapped duct tape around the mouths of the victims and stabbed them in their ears with a screwdriver. On March 23, 1987, Gary and Rivera abducted 24-year-old Agnes Adams. The next day, Rivera convinced Gary to let her go temporarily so she could visit her family. He drove her to a gas station and said that he would wait for her there. She walked to her boyfriend's house. She initially wanted to confront Gary, but then decided to call the police instead. The responding officers, noting chafing from the chains on her leg, went to the gas station and detained Gary. His purported best friend, Cyril Brown, was also arrested. Brown was released on a $50,000 bond and had an agreement that he would testify against Gary. In part, Brown admitted that he had witnessed Lindsay's death in the basement, and he also admitted that he had witnessed Gary's dismemberment of her body. Shortly after his arrest in April of 1987, Gary attempted to hang himself in his jail cell. At his arraignment, he claimed that the women were already in the house when he moved in. At trial, he was defended by Charles Pareto, who attempted to prove that Gary was legally insane. Gary's insanity claim was successfully rebutted by the prosecution led by Charles Gallagher. The fact that he successfully amassed approximately $550,000 through his brokerage account was used to prove that he was an astute investor and therefore not insane. Testimony, which was given by his Merrill Lynch financial advisor, Robert Kirkpatrick, was also used to prove Gary's mental competence. Kirkpatrick called Gary an astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing. On July 1st, 1988, 
Gary was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggravated assault, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. He was sentenced to death and incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution at Pittsburgh. In January 1989, he attempted suicide with an overdose of prescribed medication. In 1997, Gary's daughter Maxine Davidson White and his ex-wife Betty Disto filed a suit in federal court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania in which they requested a stay of execution on the basis that Gary was not competent enough to be executed. After two years of legal proceedings in various courts, on July 3, 1999, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania issued its final ruling, clearing the way for Gary's execution. Gary's last meal was two slices of cheese pizza and black coffee. He was executed by lethal injection on July 6, 1999 at the State Correctional Institution Rockview in Bellefonte, Pennsylvania, and his body was cremated. He was the last person to have been executed by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He remains the third of only three people who have been executed in Pennsylvania since the resumption of the death penalty. The other two were Keith Zettelmoyer in May of 1995 and Leon Moser in August 1995. I recently learned about him through a podcast that I listened to a couple weeks ago, and I thought that it was a pretty interesting story to share with you guys. But now, my next three stories are all Thanksgiving stories from yourghoststories.com. So let's just get into them. My cousins have this huge property in a rural area, basically in the middle of nowhere. They have a huge farmhouse, a barn, stables, and everything. Every year for Thanksgiving, my family and I, along with other relatives, drive up to their place to celebrate. They have a huge house, and it has plenty of space for everyone. It was weirdly really warm for November, like short sleeves weather, so the parents expected us to play outside. The eldest cousin, who I'll call John, suggested that we play hide-and-seek. Before we ran off, he pointed to the abandoned guest house, and he said that it was haunted. We snickered because John was a big liar, and no one believed him. But, oh boy, he sure was right. George, my aunt's son, who was my age, dared me to hide in the house. I looked at the dark, paint-peeled house, I didn't want to seem like a baby, so of course I went in. I creaked open the door and I snuck in. I took a creaky, decayed set of stairs to the second floor and ran into the first room I saw. The floor was covered in some wet substance that smelled metallic, but the only thing on my mind was hide and seek. I hid in a closet and sat down. There was a black cloak 
hanging inside the closet and I hid behind it. I was there for a good 15 to 20 minutes before I heard the downstairs, door downstairs creak open. A little boy giggled. I figured that it was George, but then they started going upstairs. The footsteps stopped right in front of my room. I froze, trying to stifle my laughter, but then the boy stepped in. He wasn't George. He was pale and he was covered in blood. He sat on the floor, giggling for what seemed like an hour. I couldn't look, and then it stopped. I ran out of the closet and I floored it downstairs. I ran inside where my parents were about to call the police, and I spilled everything. John gave me a look like, I told you not to, he said. Turns out the same thing happened to him when he was little. And now for our second story. At around noon, my mom and Alexa left the house to get stuff for Thanksgiving. We were inviting most of my mom's family over, like we always do. So my mother wanted to get a lot of food for about the 20 people that she was inviting. So when she had come home, it took about 15 minutes to get all of the grocery bags on the table. Now in the time that she was gone, which was maybe about an hour and a half, one event happened that involved my younger sister, Sophie. Sophie is about 14 years old, almost 15, so she's a lot younger than me and Alexa. Now, for this story to make sense, I was in the living room that had the door to the backyard. If you were standing in the kitchen, you'd be able to see the living room I was in perfectly. Now the steps to the upstairs were right by the front door, so when you'd walk in, on your right would be the steps. In front of you would be a bathroom, on the left in the entrance to the living room, and on the left would be the second living room. As I was just sitting in the living room, I noticed a red crayon rolling on the ground and right to my foot. As it stopped rolling, I heard a girl yell for me from upstairs, possibly around 10 years old. I thought it was Sophia, even though she said that she was going outside, but maybe she snuck back in the house without me knowing. Besides, she was the only other girl in the house, so it made sense at the time for the voice to belong to her. So I got up and I headed to the stairs. As I reached the first step, I froze. The same red crayon was there, just lying on the first step. I ran back to the living room, where I found the red crayon rolling on the floor. It was gone. I ran back to the stairs, and the crayon had moved to the second step. I heard the same voice call for me from upstairs. Just then, the back door opened, and Sophia walked in. And this is what we said. Sophia, um, what's wrong? Me. Are you playing a trick on me with this red crayon? Sophia, no, I wasn't even in the house this entire time. I froze to clear myself up. Obviously, something in this house is playing a trick on me, but I didn't know what it was. That night, I had a dream that I was looking at the crayon, 
and out of nowhere it moved to the next step twice. This happened every night until the night it made its way all the way up the stairs. All of a sudden things went dark and I heard a girl in the same voice that had been calling my name say, I'm coming for you so you better watch out. I swear I could have seen the smallest outline of a girl just sitting there on the top step. Ever since this happened, I've been doing loads of research, but I could barely find anything to help my experience. Although I happened to come across urban legends and creepypastas, but nothing about a little girl, considerably a ghost. Now I'm obviously not going to jump to any conclusion yet. I want to find more information on this before I even insist to jump to conclusions. Most likely, I'll try looking up a history of the house. I'll keep you guys updated if I can. I hope that you enjoyed this odd story. And now, for our final story. It was a few days before Thanksgiving of 2004, and I had family that was coming in from out of town. My younger cousin, which I'll call B, she was in to anything and everything paranormal. So my older brother and I were telling her about this witch's grave that we went and seen. And until this day, I can remember what was written on her headstone. This is what it says. Remember me as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. So prepare for death and follow me. Well, she wanted to go and see the grave and trace it. So my older brother, my uncle, and my identical cousins all went to show her and my uncle the grave. Well, my twin cousins decided that they were going to dance on her grave, despite what anyone said to them. Nothing happened that first night. About a week after they left, I kept seeing this dark figure in the doorway of my bedroom. He was tall, and he was darker than dark. My mom had also seen him in our driveway by the gate. Her bedroom was by the living room, and from her room you can see everything. From then on, strange things had happened, but I would like to know if he was just giving us a warning or if they made him mad. Because about a month into our new year, my uncle was diagnosed with lung cancer. He never smoked a day in his life because he was allergic to cigarette smoke. And then soon after that, my stepdad had a mild stroke. I moved out of the house and they were telling me how the keys would just fly off the wall and land in the middle of the living room. When my son, he was newborn at the time, went and stayed with them. He would stare at the attic door as if he was waiting for someone to come down from up there and he would cry if he was left alone. Well, to skip a few years down, my mom had a horrible stroke while living there and she is now paralyzed on the right side of her body. And she and my stepdad are divorced as well. I was just curious as to if as to if anyone had anything similar to them happen, or maybe they might know what is causing my family and I such turmoil.
Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by subscribing on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.